Parenting is Political is only made possible because of listeners like you. If you would like to help support the podcast, you can go to our website, parentingispolitical.org, and become a monthly subscriber. Also, don't forget to like us on Facebook and check out our Instagram. Thanks, and enjoy the episode. Hey folks, on this week's episode we're going to be talking about sexuality and sex, and I just wanted to give a quick trigger warning for sexual assault and rape. Additionally... If you are triggered after the episode, make sure to take really good care of yourself. Go for a walk outside um, or a stroll outside or however you can. Breathe, drink some water, and just remind yourself that uh, this content can be really difficult and taking care of your needs is very important. Welcome back to Parenting is Political. This is Mo. And I'm Jasmine. And we're joined, as always, by August, our four-month-old co-host. Yeah. So if you hear baby coos or cries or farts and burps in the background, it's because August is here and we think that normalizing your children and young people being in your workspaces um, and integrated into your life should be normalized. It should be a thing. Absolutely. So this week, we are going to be talking about sexuality. Um, in Let's talk about sex, baby. Let's talk about you. Stop it. <laughs> August was singing, though. Did you hear that? Do you know? Do you know about sex, August? And the reason we're talking about it is because of episode three. So if you haven't listened to episode three... Go back. Stop what you're doing. Uh, skirt. <laughs> Go listen to it, and then come yes. back. And then uh, maybe it'll make a little bit more sense in context. And for a quick overview, in episode three, we talked about functionalism and the four pillars of um, the nuclear family. And one of the pillars or the functions of the nuclear family was around the control of sexuality and offspring, Mm -hmm. coupling the two. And Mo realized they didn't know as much as they wanted to know around this subject, which there's just massive amounts of content to learn. So they are sort of like backtracking and breaking down each pillar or function of the nuclear family to have a deeper conversation. And even this conversation um, it could go on for years and years and years. All of the four pillars of the nuclear family, as it relates to the colonized and colonizer, um, are so rich. There's so much content that this could literally keep you busy for years. Uh, So if we don't cover something, remember, you can always email us. You can always DM us on Facebook. Uh, You could also ask questions on Instagram and get a conversation started. We're happy to expand. Yeah, we are. But also, did you just say that sexuality had to do with colonization? Uh, yeah, literally every part of who we are as people in a people group has been colonized. Oh my god. We have so much to learn, you guys. <laughs> but to begin with, maybe we should start with what we were both taught, maybe? Yeah. You want to talk about that? You want me to start or you want to start? What were you taught, what were you taught about sex, Mo? Well, I wasn't <clears throat> taught about sex. I guess we should start there. That is not true. First of all. Oh, gosh. We're already off on the wrong foot. Way to fail. (laughs) So, you... Maybe a better way to say that is that you weren't um, explicitly taught Mm. things about sexuality. But all of us learn 
about money, about relationships, about yeah. sex, about politics, about power. We are constantly learning. That's it's a good point. just the 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 um habit and dynamic of who we are as a species, right? We are observant and we usually learn by proxy of those we are attached to. So while your parents may not have directly taught you anything, they taught you lots of things indirectly, covertly about sex. Yeah, I guess I never had the talk about sex, but I definitely picked up on some messages. I think probably that's a really good point. One of the biggest things that I learned was like, you don't talk about sex. Not with your words, at least. Not with our words. And so, uh, sexuality was something that was always very, like, taboo, and it was very shame-filled. And I think the message that I received from my nuclear family and from, like, the church I was raised in was that sex is this really awful and terrible thing, and you should save it for the person that you love the most. You should save it. Which is, like, now that I think about it, it makes zero sense. It's disgusting, but save it for marriage. Yeah, save it for this person that you're supposed to love more than anybody else. This disgusting thing. Rub your dirty parts together. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, so I I mean, that's the main premise of what I was taught. But also, I mean, I filled in a lot of blanks uh, about sexuality. In particular, which was probably one of the most clear things, was that it was sex was to be had between... A married man and woman. So a husband and a wife were the people. Cis. Yeah, cisgendered Cis-gender. husband and wife were the only people that should be having sex. Anything outside of that um, was considered a sin, including masturbation. And also masturbation. Rubbing, rubbing one. one rubbing one's own dirty parts together <laughs> by themselves. <laughs> yeah, and so uh, I was also taught that only dudes masturbated. And so, yeah, and so I was obviously masturbating from a very, well, not obviously, I guess, not everybody does, but I was masturbating from a very young age, and not only did I feel really dirty about it because you weren't supposed to masturbate, but then I wasn't a dude and I was masturbating, so I was all, am I the only person who's doing this? Yes, Surely nobody else was. just you. God damn it. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, Wait to confirm my fear, babe. You're welcome. But yeah, those were some of the... The initial things that I was taught about sexuality. Wow, wow, wow. Yeah, it was very, um, I don't know. It was a rough time trying to unlearn all that. And then whenever I came to terms with the fact that I'm a queer person, that was a whole nother layer of shame on top of everything else. Because not only was I, like, experiencing sexuality in general, but it was like a, I'm a gay person sexuality. Mm. So it was even more layered. Um, but yeah, those were some of the things I was taught at the very beginning of life. And it was all in the context of the church. Oh yeah. Everything was informed by the doctrine of this Southern Baptist church I was raised in. Because I was, I went to a school that was started by the church. And so that church informed everything that the school taught. And then my parents went to that church, and so everything that was taught to me at home was through this lens of what they were taught at the church. Mm. Ooh. That's a lot. That's a lot. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. So I was taught things very um, explicitly about sexuality. My mom had... My mom was a single parent. And... Excuse me. You're excused. (laughs) The conversation around sexuality was rooted, um, 
first in masturbation. She taught all of us how to masturbate. Your mom taught you how to masturbate? Yeah. She, like, I mean, she didn't, like, give a hands-on demonstration. (laughs) But but she talked about it. Yeah. She said that one of the best ways to take care of myself and my body was through masturbation. What? And that um, if I wanted to have, like, healthy sex that was fulfilling in the future, I had to know what I liked and what I didn't like. And I was the best person for the job to figure that out. Jesus Christ. I wish I had been taught that. So, um, which is sort of like, and I don't think it's a, a problem as necessarily it's a, a pretty big challenge for sexual partners that I've had as an adult. <laughs> because I learned at a very young age what I liked. And um, I got really good <laughs> at giving myself what I liked. And, um, you know... I've had a lot of lazy sexual partners who were just, like, not interested in figuring out how to provide pleasure to me in a way that um, was pleasurable, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know? And it was their lack of sexual education. And also, I'm a Virgo, so I'd be like, just get the fuck out of the way, I'll do it myself. (laughs) I'm I'm the best at everything. Yeah. Um, so there was that layer and my mom, you know, was the first person to talk to me about vibrators, to talk to me about different ways to masturbate with, um, and have sexual play with different toys and tools. Um, and then it was, it was never an expectation that I would wait till marriage for sex. There was, if you want birth control or condoms, please come and get them from me. Okay. I will, I will get you what you need. Damn, I didn't even know what a condom was until I got to college, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Yikes! So, I mean, it really wasn't a huge deal The the in my family. The gaps, though, were that my mom, you know, because my mom grew up with drag queens as, as close friends and confidants and gay men in particular, she did talk about sexually transmitted diseases and HIV, but it was always in the, um, and AIDS and HIV, but it was always in the context of, let me back up. She talked about STDs and STIs, Mm -hmm. which stands for sexually transmitted infections and diseases because those are two different things. Um, but she always talked about it in the context of, uh, like, cisgender heterosexual sex. So when she found out that I was, like, having sexual contact with, uh, girls, other cisgender girls, it was like, oh, okay, no big deal. You don't need any kind of, like, protection. You, there are no, no things you should consider. And that was a misstep on her part. Right. And then there was this also weird thing that happened the first time I had premarital sex with a dude. She lost it. Really? Yeah. And she was like, I expected better of you. I can't believe that you've had premarital sex. But it was because at that point in her life, she had found the Lord again. Oh. And gone back to the church. And gone back to the church. And so, you know, the early part of my life was centered in this, like, sexual positivity and freedom. And then that's what shaped me. And then when I made, at 18, 19 years old, the decision to have sex with a cis dude for the first time. Yeah. My mom had sort of gone back to that really repressive sexual energy that the church called her to 
And so I was experiencing shame. And so it was this conversation of like, what the fuck? Yeah. You taught me and now you're shaming me. What whiplash is this? Yeah. Yeah. Thankfully, she left the church like two, three years later and came back and was like, yeah, so. About that. That was fucked up and I'm sorry. Uh, My bad. (laughs) Oh, goodness. So there was that. And then when we talk about sexuality, we have to talk about uh, sexual violence and gender-based violence. Yeah. And so much of what I learned outside of my mother, outside of my peers, um, was about uh, like the power and how sexual violence amounts to power. Right. I um, Trigger warning for those who have some rough sexual trauma background. From the age of five until the age of eight, I was brutally raped mm. regularly um, by a parent in my life. And um, I was molested by that parent and his girlfriend. Mm. Um, and then after my mom escaped with my brother and I from that violent situation... We landed into another situation by the time I was nine and a half, ten, where my mother's um, boyfriend from the time I was ten until the time I was 14 when we finally got away from him also raped me. And um, that sort of set me up to have this very precarious relationship around assault, excuse me, assault and trauma and sexual harassment and um, really transformed my relationship. And it is an act of grace and wonder and resilience and the power of my ancestors and just the love of my community that I've had that I've come to a place of healing through all of that. But um, those two things in particular were really formative to my sexual identity. Yeah. Yeah. So that sort of warped my understanding of sex in my body and, um, yeah, yeah, that shaped things. So that's a little bit about my background, a little bit about yours. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that to kind of piggyback on what you were talking about, and maybe this is a good segue into talking about, you know, colonization and sexuality and all those things, you mentioned that sex and power are often related. Um... In that a lot of the times the people who have more power in our lives use this idea of sex and sexuality as a way to control those who have less power. Absolutely. Um, And I think it's important for folks to realize, you know, as I said earlier in the podcast, every, every aspect of who we are has been colonized. Yeah. Uh, European colonialism, you know, it created this economic, social, and political underpinnings that now inform our relationships, our sexuality, our structure, and it's a part of this imperial um, approach, and we know that in those constructs, in the colonized versus the colonizer, it's all about power differentials Mm -hmm. as they are defined by those who are colonizing. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. Great. Absolutely. So the individual um, and the collective 
combine to serve the needs of the colonizer so the individual's rights, identity, their obligations, their behaviors, those are all shaped by what the colonizer sees. Right. So when you think about, um, you know, indigenous people and folks pre-colonization, they, there was nakedness, there was a fluidity to gender, there was a fluidity to sexuality, there was a lot of community-based sex. Yeah. Um, non-monogamous. There was a lot of non-monogamy. <laughs> and marriage was, um, in, in many um, indigenous communities and uncolonized communities, Marriage was about uh, security and relationship development and sort of, like, tracking resources and this collective power and tradition. And it was less about what Western folks in particular view um, sexuality to be. Right. Which, I mean, when we think about it and we go back to Murdoch and his idea of a nuclear family... And this function of the nuclear family as being sexuality. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's, he's reinforcing this idea of colonialism and colonization. Yeah. And, and so power differences, And right? so you, think of, you, you have to think about sex as a, por- a form of power for the colonizer. Right. Right? The colonizer was able to control um, and, and invoke fear, which is where rape and assault come from. Right. Um, it's about, like, this imposition of the advantages or the favors that you get as the colonizer. And then, you know, of course, there are the colonized people. Yeah. That we, um, trade access to our body or sexual exchange in hopes of safety, mm-hmm. in hopes of having resources or favor from those with power. And, you know, that's why, um, sexual harassment is so hard to navigate for a lot of folks um, because they don't see the ways in which power is the necessary um, condition for harassment to take place. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult for someone with significantly less power to be the perpetrator of harassment and usually um, when that happens there's a lot more unfolding than what people want to acknowledge outside of just this either or this like black and white construct of like you said something inappropriate to your boss you sexually harassed your boss Mm -hmm. the end there's more to that conversation right there's a lot of nuance and I think that um you know I was reading was it Hillary talking about partner in crime or I don't remember remember or it was like some article where it talked about Bill did not was not Hillary said that there that wasn't assault because she was old enough she was, was of, she was of age. They were both adults. Yeah. But that's just not true. No. And what makes it untrue? I was about to, I was about to ask. What makes it untrue? <laughs> well, let's, <laughs> like, let's unpack it because there's a lot of assumptions that could be made about it. But Yeah, it they, they were both adults. Mm-hmm. But what makes it untrue is that he had significantly more institutional and situational power than she had. So the ability for her to consent with, and, and like realizing mm-hmm. what she was consenting to um, was greatly diminished. Correct. And he had more power because he... Oh, goodness, there's so much to oh, get up happening. <laughs> August just barfed. He had more power because, first and foremost, he is a man. 
He's a man. And he had authority in the form of capitalism and he's a hierarchy. A, he's a cisgender man. He had socioeconomic power and privilege. As her boss. And he was her fucking boss! Yeah. And so, why it was wrong that Hillary said that was, you can't, you can't disregard those power structures that are in place because those are the same, those same power structures are what makes it an abuse of power, right? An abuse of power, if the person feels as though they were, like, um, unable to fully consent right. and that they, that it was coercive and it was manipulative. Right. Because there are relationships where, um, a subordinate to a, a boss or an executive or whatever, you know, whoever, who has more power, they fall in love and mm-hmm. they get married and they have a relationship or they date or they whatever. Right. right. There are those instances. But in those instances, the person who had less power does not feel coerced. Right. They don't feel like if they do not consent to this, they will lose something that is um, a part of their well-being and their stability. And in this case, Monica definitely felt like she would not be able to advance in her career and, you know, do the things that she needed to do as a professional if she did not uh, relent to, to the advances. That's coercion. Right. So, and you know, coercion is like sort of like the natural tool of colonial domination when it comes to sexuality. Wow. Woo. Do you need to take a break? <laughs> Get some like iced tea or maybe a popsicle? And I think this, this, I think this, this other layer exists in our society that we don't want to name, but has become true in my situation. So before I was married to Mo, I was married to a man who was an abuser. Um, there's no other word for it. And I don't use that word, um, very lightly because I've been accused of being an abuser. Mo's been accused of being an abuser. Literally everyone we know. Yeah. Um, has, you know, based on someone's definition, been, you know, called an abuser. Mm -hmm. There's a difference, though, uh, between being a harmful person who's made some mistakes and, and, you know, moved to a place of healing or remediating the harm that you've caused and a habitual pattern of preying upon and harming people. And being unrepentant. And being unrepentant about it. Yeah. So that's the kind of person that I was married to. And in this instance, I remember being a stay-at-home parent, being a student, an undergrad student, not wanting to have sex, mm. but feeling a coercion or an obligation to have sex or relent because he controlled all the finances. He wouldn't, he would literally not give me access to the income that he made, but we supposedly shared. And it kind of put me in this place where I, I, I felt like I had to offer my body in this marriage as an exchange for access to the, the very basic thing that I needed to like take care of my kids and my household. Yeah. And it became very obvious later whenever our relationship was falling apart because I was 
becoming, um, I was getting a measure of health. I was getting support from family members and community members. And I was detaching from the abuse cycle that money was the clear power thread to sexuality. So I don't know. What was the point of what I was saying? I think we're just piggybacking on this idea of power and consent and coercion. Yes. So I, I think what I'm trying to say is that, uh, the idea of sexual coercion around consent and the ways in which we've been conditioned as colonized people to accept that sex will always be rooted in power differentials is way more insidious than we realize. Yeah, absolutely. And this is an important conversation to be having, especially right now. I mean, this, this conversation should have been happening for years now, but in particular with all of the stories that are coming forward and parents are left confused and I only know this because I was like watching the news unfortunately because I was waiting on our car to get fixed and that like even on like Good Morning America they're talking about how to have these conversations about consent with your children and so like I think it's leaving parents confused of like well like how do we even approach this conversation how do we unpack what we know about it well we've been talking about it and then how do we talk to our kids about it Uh and those are hard conversations to have but I think that it's really important to understand I understand it by breaking it down and talking about power differentials, coercion. There's a lot of nuance that's involved in these kind of conversations, but again, they're important to be having. Right. And so one of the things that we do with our kids mm-hmm. is we try and decolonize their sexuality and decolonize how we teach about sexuality um, while holding intention that the majority of their community has a colonized perspective of sexuality and that those ideas are going to be projected upon them and their bodies. So for example, with Addison who has a proclivity to be naked, the Mm -hmm. less clothes that she can wear, the better we explain to her, there's nothing inherently wrong about your nakedness. Yeah. Like you have a beautiful body and you feel very confident in it. And you should be able to allow, like, and be allowed to wear whatever you want. And you're eight years old, and there are folks in this world, whether you're eight, 18, or even 80, who will sexualize you if you're wearing clothes that don't have high coverage on your body. Mm -hmm. And that is because the habit of colonized people is to read more into, um what folks like physical appearance are it's sexualized yeah it's sexualized so that they can commodify it and use it to gain whatever they need to gain from it right right and and it's about the colonize the colonizer not being able to acknowledge their own sexual appetites and their own projections of desire onto the body of the other Mm -hmm. if that makes sense yeah so these colonizers came in in various phases throughout our history and they were quote unquote clean and had indoor plumbing (laughs) and had clothes and different things. And immediately, um, immediately began to shift how people adorn their bodies, their clean, you know, their cleaning practices, their, Mm -hmm. um, how they decorated themselves Mm -hmm. and they created categories of this is sexual wear. This is not sexual wear. This is provocative. This is not provocative. All based on, like, European colonization. Yeah, and again, rooted in 
the idea of religion and the church structure. Well, the church, and the church, in addition to like bureaucrats and diplomats, were the vehicle. Yeah. For delivering the message, right? Because it mm-hmm. was the, one of the main gathering places where these messages and cultural habits could be disseminated and practiced. Right. Yep. Enter shame. Shame. You know, anytime um, I start to experience shame in particular, it kind of signals to me that I've happened upon something in myself that might be colonized a bit. Oh. Yeah? Oh, what's wrong, August? What's wrong? What's wrong? Yeah. So it's a good little indicator you can use to really stop and think, is this... Yeah. Something that I've been colonized to think about? For example, yeah, for example, whenever I put on a pair of jeans and... Oh, squishy. And I feel, and I have that little twinge that sometimes happens with body shaming and I go, ugh. I feel disgusting in these. I stop and I go, oh, that's a shame message. Yeah. It's not like a feeling or a thought. It's a message that I am disgusting. Where's that coming from? And then I walk it back a bit further and I go, oh, that's fat shaming. I was taught to hate fat people. Oh, where did that come from? Yeah. Not to mention the added layer of like, you know, culturally, white people have over-sexualized black women's bodies. Absolutely. And having to unpack that layer that you carry around with you on a daily basis. Right, August? Absolutely. And so, something else concerning sexuality that I did want to talk about was we made a post earlier in the week about um, not talking to your children about sexuality and different sexual options um, is incredibly harmful. Do you remember that post? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And a lot of people liked that and had we had a pretty good response about it. So I was wondering if we could unpack that a little bit and talk about what it means, that quote means in particular. Yeah. So uh, sexuality, individual and uh, interpersonal sexuality, meaning sexuality with yourself, um, sexuality with others. Not just the act of sex, y'all. We're not yeah. talking about fucking only. <laughs> That's not the only... We're talking about the full spectrum sexuality, which means understanding where your gender intersects with your body, where your body intersects with like your psychology and emotional well-being around being a sexual uh, being. Um, and then like in relation to uh, your community. So... Sexuality is like nutrition, it's like physical well-being, it's like financial well-being. If you, if you will have a conversation with your child about how they should manage their money or income or lack thereof, or about education, or about how to be a good friend to someone when they're grieving... If you'll talk to your child about all of those things, the nuances and things they're in, and you don't have a conversation with them about their sexual health and well-being and their sexuality as a functioning person in this world, it's an act of abuse. Hmm. Just like not taking your child to the doctor when they're sick or getting regular checkups to make sure that their health is well or 
and not just a doctor, like healers mm-hmm. or giving them some measure of physical health, if you're not attending to the sexual layer of that, it's abusive because you are intentionally withholding vital, critical information that a young person needs in order to move forward into consent and, and to manage their well-being into adulthood and young adulthood. Yeah, absolutely. It's like not teaching your kid how to brush their teeth, right? We like, when we make this talk about sex and sexuality, something that's like hard to do or like taboo or like how do you have these conversations when just like you're saying, it's a form of health and taking care of themselves. And because of the way that we've been colonized to think and because of our own shame narratives around our sexuality and around sex in general, we're the ones who make it weird and awkward, which then only communicates to kids that they need to feel weird and awkward around their sexuality and sex. But it's not just about the weird and awkwardness. It's well, about it's about control. It's about domination. Um and when we use, when we create a buffer for conversations around sex and sexuality and we put like an age limit on it and act as though children under the age of 10 aren't sexual and yeah. don't have their own sexuality, what we do is we leave these young people alone to figure out this incredibly nuanced and entrenched thing Mm -hmm. in our society and what also ends up happening like with you when you said no one taught me anything about sex is they learn in indirect ways (laughs) and our society and the predominant loudest culture begins to be the teacher of sex and sexuality and that's rooted in oppression yeah because i learned uh, most of my direct communications around sexuality were from my older brother watching family guy Oh, God. And I was like, oh, okay, so that's what I need Is to know about Is that why sex. you use that voice when we have sex? <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> what? Is that why you're like, Lois? <laughs> you do you, baby. Just stop it right now. Just kidding. Mo doesn't use any voice during sex. Well, yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> no, but really, that's where I learned it from. Because mm-hmm. no one was actively teaching me. And kids are perceptive, just like we're talking about. We're going to learn it from something. Yeah. And cultural superiority or supremacy will always be the thing that transforms the belief. Yeah. Whether it's the belief about money, the belief about relationships, the belief about sex and sexuality. So here, when you think about it, when you don't step into that place and have courageous conversations with your young people mm-hmm. about sex and sexuality, the dominant belief transforms. And what is the dominant belief of Western uh, society? Well, currently, it's cisgender, heteropatriarchal power. Yeah. And that's what most of us learn and internalize. Absolutely. Y'all. Boom. <laughs> Boom. Thanks for coming to our TED Talk. <laughs> <laughs> But, I mean, it goes back to that question I had in episode three of why is it that the main thing I remember about being taught about homosexuality as a sin was that they were trying to ruin marriage. Because settler colonialism. Exactly. Because we are ruining their idea of marriage. That's true. (laughs) But that doesn't mean that what we are is bad or what we're doing is wrong. Mm. But we are going against the thing that's been set in place as the standard... The, what's normal, what's expected. 
And so anytime that you go outside of that, there's going to be some backlash from main society. If you're non-monogamous, if you are queer, if you're not cisgendered, if you talk super openly about your sexuality and who you sleep with and how many other people you sleep with, that's all stuff that's going to have backlash within our society, right? Yeah, especially for uh, folks who are red, feminine, or yeah, women folk, you know. Yeah. <sighs> well, is there anything else we should talk about? Or should we just kind of like let this settle for a minute? I don't know. I mean, like, what are the takeaways? What are the resources or the things that you want folks to know around this conversation? I mean, obviously this was a primary, y'all. Like I said, there's so much. There's so much nuance. Like, one thing that we aren't able to get into this episode is the colonizer's desire of the other and how then the other becomes exoticized and the colonized people begin to perform... um, these identities around sexuality based on the things that are projected on them in order to survive in, in the habits of colonized, uh, or excuse me, inside the habits and needs of the colonizer. I know as a black woman, I've done that. And I didn't know I was fucking doing it right. until after the fact. And it wasn't because it, it, you know, this hypersexualized version of myself was who I was. It was because it felt safer to perform for the white folks who had the power. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And I can't wait for that episode, babe. Jeez <laughs> Louise, y'all. I think some of the takeaways, though, I mean, is just getting folks to start thinking about how their sexuality has been colonized. And how we can start to decolonize that. What are some things that you were taught about sexuality, either... Overtly or covertly. Mm-hmm. And what are some things that you're teaching your kids about it? Because like we said, you may not be talking to them directly about sex or sexuality, but they're still learning it. So what are you not saying? What are some gaps that you're leaving for them to fill in? Who are they learning it from? And more specifically, like we said, like what are the things that you're directly telling them about it? And is that rooted in a continuation of shame and colonization and power differentials and coercion? Or is it something that's going to be, you know, more resistant to that structure? Is it going to allow more freedom? And um, talking more about consent and different options for sexual partners and sexual health and how to use protection and all those things. Protection. Protection. So those are, I think, my main takeaways from our conversation. It's just, it's almost like a, let's get it started. Let's get the conversation started and start thinking about it. Yeah, what about you? that's important. I think, though, that we have to bring this down from, and this is probably a lot of this is my fault, because I'm very, very smart, y'all. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I mean, I mean I'm smart, but yeah. just kidding. Um, I, you know, we have this, we've been having this conversation about this very, um, it's like all in the head. Yeah. It's this. We're talking about analysis and praxis and we're using these words that aren't always accessible to the everyday person, Mm -hmm. which is a, you know, a function of our class status being both college educated folks, not that folks who are not 
college educated, don't use these words, right. you know, aren't capable of using these words. What I'm saying is that we're speaking about it in a way that does not give the, the youngest person amongst us the ability to access the conversation. So when you say, look in the parts of your sexuality that have been colonized, what does that mean for you? Let's break it down just a bit more to people who, because, you know, decolonization is not a thing that folks, everyday folks, know about and right. talk about. So, like, if you were talking to a white person from the Midwest who's never heard the term decolonized or colonized, and they're, like, asking you parenting tips around sexuality, how would you break it down for them? Oof. Okay. Um, see, see, yeah, see, the challenge is to stop being theoretical and to bring it down to practical application that we can build into real community. Because if we talk about it constantly and we've got all these theories, but we can't be about it, we don't know how to translate it into actual transformative action. How does it help anyone? What are we even doing? What are you even fucking doing though? <laughs> I don't know. So... Should we like brainstorm this right now, or do I? I mean, you probably like, should. I have the answer. <laughs> Are you <laughs> gonna enlighten us now, or is this like a? I need to take the time to understand this, and then like come back on a different episode and talk about the tangible. What the fuck the, was I even talking about? The, the takeaways. Yeah. Yeah. Um. I mean, I think that's still a good thing for you. Yeah. I think that. It's, a, it's an important practice for you in particular as you've been learning these um, vocabulary words. Because without, mm. without really having a practice behind it or a habit developed and seeing how you connect it to everyday real life, it's just a vocabulary word that yeah. you've developed. Makes you sound really fancy. Smart, smart. Uh, but for me, whenever I say to folks, decolonize your sexuality, decolonize your parenting around sexuality... What I'm doing, what I'm saying, and this can be different for everyone because there is no one right way, first of all, y'all. This is all very much rooted in our culture, our resources, and all the different layers that make us all unique. But the first thing that I say, if you want to be a parent who decolonizes your um, sexuality and how you guide your young person through that, the first place that you need to look is where, who has the power and who has the ability to decide. Okay. Because colonized structures depend on hierarchy of power and allows the person who has the most power to define identity and choice and create habits of control. That is to say, if your child is not the person making the main choices about their sexuality, you are colonizing your child's sexuality. Good. If you're not letting your child lead and trusting them while empowering them with information and the options and the possible outcomes, having very um, stark and sober conversations with them around the external outcomes and the internal outcomes that are possible, then you're colonizing your child's sexuality. Mm -hmm. If you're creating rules that are based in your power that are based in your comfort and that are based in your desire to avoid certain things, you're creating habits of colonization with your child and their sexuality. 
Simple things like forcing your child to hug people that they don't want to hug or creating a culture where, oh, go hug so-and-so or you're going to give me a kiss. Uh, ignoring ideas of consent for your young people is, is colonized. It's about power. That's about power. So our kids, whenever I'm talking to them, uh, they really do lead the conversation around their own sexuality. Yeah, they do. Everything from my standpoint becomes an opportunity to be curious about them. Mm -hmm. And then I ask questions, not, not questions that are like, um, interrogating who they are, but questions about permission. So for example, with Zara, I'll say, Hey, would you like to learn about what some people think and, or what I think around masturbation or around whatever? Uh, because they still need to be consenting and yeah. you need to model consent because they may not be ready to have those conversations. Yeah. Again, all those conversations are rooted in developmental appropriateness. Right. I have different conversations with my 11-year-old than when I had with uh, her when she was six. Mm -hmm. But guess what? Those conversations always happened. Yeah. And they happened as early as her language developed. I had a conversation with her about sexuality. Not a single conversation, but ongoing daily conversations. Yeah, which is why we need to get away from that idea of having the talk. Like, you only need to have it once, and that's going to cover everything. <laughs> that's silliness. You have conversations with your kids as they develop, and what's appropriate for them to know, and what's not appropriate. And I love this idea of making sure that like they're consenting to the conversation. Because not only does that model consent, it also lets you as the parent know, maybe the kid's not ready to talk about this. Right. Or maybe they're not interested in learning from you, by the way. Yeah. And you don't that's, need to take that shit personally. That's also a conversation that folks don't have when they're parenting children. Mm. Some children, some young people would prefer to learn by going to the library and picking out books. Yeah. And then being curious about what the book says. And you know what? I've done that. I have a young person who's like, please don't talk to me about sex and your experience. I could give a shit. <laughs> but please take me to the library and learn. And whenever I took them to the library and we read through a bunch of different books, it was an opportunity for me to say, hey, what do you agree with in this book? What do mm -hmm. you disagree with? Here's the things that I disagree with. Here's the things that have happened in my experience. Like one book that they picked up and read only showed cisgender heterosexual relationships. And I said... Yeah. You know, I'm not represented in this book. At this time, I was married to a man. Mm -hmm. And I said, it looks like I am, but did you know that I have relationships with women and it's a really important part of my sexuality? Or I have relationships with non-binary people and it's a really important part of my sexuality. And that person was like, oh, hey, thanks for giving me that feedback. Now, that was like a 16-year-old person that I was parenting at the time. Uh, but those kind of conversations are also possible. Right. So, yeah, I think it's really important for us to learn about these, um, like, higher, like, macro theories and ideas around sexuality and what has informed what habits and systems of harm um, in our oppressive society have informed our sexuality and impacted it. But ultimately, how do we take these very academic ideas and bring them to a place where the everyday parent who doesn't know what colonization means can 
really start to have transformative relationships with the young people that they are guiding and loving. Yeah, that was a really good point, Jazz. Thanks for helping us break it down even more. Into some some better takeaways. Yeah. So identifying power within conversations mm-hmm. is something that's tangible. Instead of saying, let's decolonize our sexuality. But let's just identify first where the power is. And yeah. maybe, you know, like I said before, like, what are the things you actually are teaching? What are the things you're not teaching by not saying something? Those are some very tangible ways to start decolonizing <laughs> our sexuality. Now you feel bad for saying yeah, that, Yeah, I know. You? God, you're so white. Your white anxiety uh, is so, it's so thick. Help. It's so <laughs> thick. Yeah. There's that. And then, you know, maybe another place to start is rejecting hierarchical power. Yeah. And look for ways that you can collaborate with your young person. Because guess what? They don't start being autonomous beings when they're 18 and move out or go to college or leave the nest or however white Western society wants to conceptualize it. They are uh, uh, self-determined, differentiated creatures as soon as they come out of the womb. Yeah, totally. They start using the person who birthed them or their caretakers or whomever. They start interacting our four-month-old is already starting to do it. Our four-month-old is already like, bitch, you're not looking at me when I eat. I said eye contact. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 that's really fantastic. Mm-hmm. And I have to figure out, in that symbiotic relationship as the person who breastfeeds August, to figure out how to take care of my needs and August's needs. But it's a relationship. Yeah. And sexuality and power in particular, in relationship, you can use it to harm or to heal and transform. And every choice we make, you know, it. Th- there are just very few neutral decisions when it comes to yeah. the, the formation of personhood whenever power is involved. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good... That's going to be a quote, probably. You think so? Yeah. <laughs> Well, let's just call this part one of the conversation then. Uh, I feel like all of your episodes on this podcast, Mo, are going to be like, part 1400 of this thing. I know. know. Isn't it great? Is it great? This is what happens. You're going to have content for the rest of eternity. Yeah. Literally never going to stop. And of course, that is a perspective. My perspective is my mother was a European Cherokee woman my father was um, various forms of indigenous African. And um, I grew up in Oklahoma to a single mother. We were raised in poverty. I'm a sexual assault survivor. So a lot of my ideas around sexuality are absolutely shaped by those things, by those biases, by the fact that I had a um, white passing mother, by by so much. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't necessarily make me wrong or more qualified. It just makes it different. Yeah. And if you spoke to um, an indigenous person from the Sioux tribe with no African heritage mm-hmm. and no European heritage, you might have a very different perspective that's offered. Um, who we are and the layers of our lives obviously inform so much about 
how we construct our ideas around relationships and love and sexuality and sex um, and politics and everything else. Yeah. But one through line that's global is this theme of power and domination. Right. And hierarchy. And we can be collaborative and create generative practices. That is to say practices that that are that um create uh that create life and sustain life or we can create practices that destroy life and weaken that little spark that lives in all of us um that's a part of how we form into the adults that we will all be one day yeah absolutely Great. There's a lot, a lot, a lot of good stuff in this episode. Um, I hope that y'all enjoyed it. Uh, if you have any questions, feel free to email us at contact at parentingispolitical.org. Uh, go ahead and like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram. We post a lot of content throughout the week that um, is helpful for understanding these larger conversations we have when we drop the new episodes. Hopefully it's helpful. Maybe it's not, but maybe it is. An important show note is we have been, um, we've gotten some really wonderful shares and we appreciate it. Y'all have been so loving and supportive and y'all are also like low-key internet stalkers. Some of you have found us and we keep getting these deluges of um, friend requests and follows on our personal Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not responding to those, y'all. <laughs> no. It's not you, it's me. Yeah. We love you, but we also love our privacy. Mo is a non-binary person who is queer. I'm a black, queer, non-monogamous person. We've got a trans kid. We've got kids who are assault survivors. And we, despite the things we talk about and some of the things that we share online, and we may appear to be very visible and accessible, but we also are deeply private people. We can yeah. be both at the same time. So, don't be offended. I mean, you, I mean, you can. Just, yeah. you know. Don't take it personal. Yes, that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think that's it. That's all we got for this week. That's all we got. Bye. <laughs>